If you have your Bibles, let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 2 again. 2 Timothy chapter 2, we are making our way. This is part number 15 in our study uh, through the pastoral epistles. We won't be here too much longer. Uh, But I hope you've enjoyed these studies as we've walked through Paul's letters to these pastors, to these pastors as they're taking over churches. And really, they give us all, I think, that we too, in the modern church, the 21st century church, I I can say, that we too need to, to know, to stand firm in, to believe, to preach, to share. These are letters, I think, that are very relevant to us. As much as they were to Timothy and to Titus in their days, they're just as relevant, I think, to us as well. Uh, The church who uh, is likewise going through tumultuous seasons, seasons in which false teaching is creeping in. Or I would say it's not just creeping in, it's there and it's, it's very present and it's, it's, it's in these times that as, as Paul has said, as Paul says in the first chapter of the second letter, in verse 13, hold fast the form of sound words. Cling to them. Cling to these truths, Timothy. These are what are going to last. These are what are going to sustain you and support you in all of your times. And here, as we noted last time, Second uh, Timothy works as a farewell letter of sorts from the Apostle Paul. This is the last known piece of writing that we have in the Bible. He may have and likely wrote other letters. Uh, but we know that this is the last piece of writing that we have in the New Testament Scriptures from Paul's pen. We know that he's writing it essentially on his deathbed in a very dark, damp Roman dungeon. And he's there, enduring sort of all of the calamities of Nero's persecution of the Christians during this time. And you can, I think I was confronted by that, just realizing, sort of putting it in a historical context, just all that is going on around Paul, you can just really see it in his writing. That, like we mentioned last week, that sense of finality, that sense of, uh, of being finished, so to speak. He says that as much in the fourth chapter, but you can see here Paul's passion. What is this passion for Timothy? That Timothy would persevere in his life and ministry of faith regardless of whatever else may come about. Whatever circumstances that Timothy and his church and his ministry is made to endure. Timothy, hold fast these words. Hold fast to the sound doctrine of God. Cling to these truths. This was Timothy's calling. He says as much in the first verse. Look at first verse of chapter 2 where he writes, Thou therefore my son, he's pleading with him as his son in the faith again, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong in it, Timothy. You're going to need this grace to be your strength. Because there is coming a wave, Paul is saying, there's coming a wave of all types of catastrophe to the church. Be strong in this grace, Timothy. You're going to need it. And he reminds him of his purpose. Look at verse 2. He says, And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. He reminds him of his purpose. 
Again, he reminds him, Timothy, here is your calling. Preach this, uh, be strong in this grace, preach this grace, share it to other faithful men. Don't stop, don't waver in what you have been called to do. The things that you heard of me, all of the apostolic doctrine that I have striven to show you and uh, preach to other congregations, you, the same, share this with your church and with other faithful men. Such is what would make your church strengthened and solidified, even in these harrowing days. And it serves as a clear motivation for Timothy. This is his calling. Preach grace, be strong in grace, share this grace with others. But how, how, how could Timothy motivate these others, these other faithful men, to do the same thing? Imagine being a preacher in a church in which your very truth is putting other people in prison. Is actually putting other people to death. How do you motivate people to uh, share in that same sort of suffering? I think you show, uh, as Paul does, that this doctrine that we have is not just any old doctrine. It's the doctrine of salvation, as he will go on later to say in chapter 3. I think also, too, as we can read the next couple of verses, he gives Timothy three portraits of the Christian life and how they can represent, how they can, too, be strong in the grace of Christ Jesus. Yes, even through these grievous, even through these tumultuous, even through these suffering seasons of life. I want to look at those three portraits As we have them here this evening. The first one comes in verses 3 and 4. Where Paul says this. Thou therefore endure hardness. As a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life. That he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. So again, as we've noted before, he implements a military sort of tone and imagery. Uh, It's not just a tone. It's actually really uh, explicit. As he says, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. He's implied as much uh, in his first letter as well. It's a very common example of the Apostle Paul to implement this sort of warlike military imagery into his letters. Of course, the most Probably famous example of this is Ephesians chapter 6 by his charge of the church to put on the armor of God. But here he is reiterating it again. And I, you get the sense, just like in the first letter in 1 Timothy, that this is the commissioning of Timothy in his new marching order, so to speak. As if Paul was the general giving new commands to a lieutenant. Here's what your new mission is, Timothy. Here's your new way and your new duty. Here's your new marching orders. And the imagery is abundantly clear. He doesn't sugarcoat his message. He doesn't try and make it appear more palatable for Timothy to accept it. He doesn't try and make it appear better so that it's easier for Timothy to hear and understand and accept. Notice he says... Endure hardness. (laughs) Endure the struggle. Suffer trouble. Embrace all the affliction that's going to come with you as you are part of the Christian army, the army of Christ. And as you have enlisted for Christian service, so to speak. Endure this hardness. How? Again, by being strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. 
By being strong in that grace, he would be able to endure all the hardness that was going to come about. And for for Timothy, he has to just accept that this is an inevitable fact of being enlisted in God's army, so to speak. As being a member of the Christian service that is preaching God's truth. If you go back to chapter 1 in verse 8, Paul says that as much. Be not therefore ashamed, he writes... Of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. Be ready to participate in these things, to be a partaker in the afflictions, to endure hardness as a good soldier. H.A. Ironside, the great expositor, he says that the Christian life is a constant warfare. It's a warfare that's constantly going on all around us. One Scottish minister, he writes it this way. He says, every believer, and preeminently the believer who is also a minister of the gospel, is a soldier of Jesus Christ, enlisted under him as the captain of salvation to contend against the powers of evil. This you can quite clearly see is... What is going on here with Timothy? He's being confronted again with the harsh realities of what his faith means. The implications of it are easy and clear. Your faith in Jesus Christ puts you at opposition with the world's truth. Automatically conflict is inevitable. Automatically war is going to take place. Preaching Christian doctrine does not make you uh, all the more uh, affectionate towards the truths of the world. It doesn't make you appear uh, in their ears any better. In fact, you are now their enemy. Because why? You're preaching a truth that is opposed to anything and everything that the world upholds as dear and as sacred. This is the truth that I think Christ... uh, Attempted over and over again to make clear to his disciples that following him, as we will soon get to in our study in Mark, following him meant leaving everything else behind. Because following him puts you at opposition with the world. And as so long as we are engaged to live for and stand for Jesus, there will be opposition. The the preacher Alexander McLaren. I love how he writes it. He says, The message of the cross is not only a message of forgiveness and blessedness for ourselves, but it is as a trumpet note of, of defiance to all the powers of evil and a call to us to take our part in the fight. As we preach the cross, we too are defying all of the world's uh, operations in terms of what they measure successful, what they measure good, what they measure right. We are preaching the opposite of what the world preaches. But what I love is the fact, all over the scriptures, we're told that we are soldiers, correct? We know that, we can look at all the references. But it's, I love the fact that we... Don't necessarily fight like other soldiers fight. Let me take, go to a passage with me really quick. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 3. Paul here is writing here again. He says this. 2 Corinthians 
10, I said 3, 2 Corinthians 10, excuse me, chapter 10, verse 3, he says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imagination, and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Again, just like we were talking about this morning, our warfare is not necessarily with the kingdoms of this world, it's with the kingdoms of our own hearts. Our fight, here Timothy is being told, is that we don't fight necessarily like any other soldier. We fight actually by kneeling, by getting on our knees and praying. By getting on our knees and submitting ourselves, not to trying to get our own victory, but by relying on the victory that's already given to us in Jesus. We fight by praying. We endure hardness as good soldiers, not by our endurance, but by relying on God's endurance for us. And such is why Paul says, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Timothy, your fortitude in this fight as a soldier is not going to last. Save that your fortitude is coming from Jesus' grace for you, by, uh, from Jesus' faith for you. You want to know how to get sort of your heart and mind, as, as Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 10, your imaginations and your knowledge into captivity? You pray. I confess to you that it is a very hard thing to do. It's a very hard thing to relinquish that sort of control over your life and just pray to God that his victory would be made seen, may be made more evident all around us. But such is what we are called to do. To pray. We fight the good fight by kneeling. By getting on our knees and saying, God, make me faithful. God, help me to bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of your son, Jesus Christ, your king. It's a difficult sort of devotion and discipline to learn. Such as what Paul was writing about in the first letter. If you go back to 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says as much in 1 Timothy 1 verse 18 where he says, This charge I commit unto thee, son, Timothy... According to the prophecies which went before thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. War a good warfare. For what? For the faith. Contend for this faith. Contend for taking every thought and imagination into captivity in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. This is your warfare, Timothy. Because there's going to be so many messages and noises and voices that are going to try and bring you down as a soldier of the Lord. Timothy, endure this hardness. How? By being strong in the grace that is Jesus that is in Jesus Christ. And he calls them to uh, look at verse 4 of 2 Timothy 2. He says, No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. 
Again, he's calling him to utter and total devotion to this cause. Timothy, you are enlisted in God's army, so to speak. Timothy, this is your responsibility. This is your duty. Again, as we might say, these are your marching orders. Don't get caught up in the affairs of this life, he says. Don't get entangled and trapped, caught in these webs. Affairs literally means the businesses or the occupations or the concerns. For Paul, Timothy was to have total and utter devotion to the pursuit of preaching sound doctrine. To leading this church and to leading them and shepherding them and leading them during this time of incredible turmoil. Timothy was to see his calling as serious. Serious enough for him to devote all of his life to it. Don't get caught up in the affairs of this life. He must possess a singular devotion to Jesus' truth. And to the task with which he was entrusted. Remember he says in the things in verse 2. Thou hast heard of me among many witnesses. The same commit thou to faithful men. Those things that you've heard. This is your mission. Preach this gospel. Proclaim this doctrine. He has to abandon any control over his own life. We saw that last week when we looked at the idea that he had to relinquish his own will for his life. And as it says in verse 1 of chapter 1, to live by the will of God. Such is what any soldier must endure whenever he goes into basic training. What is basic training other than the fact of just whittling down any person, any individual's own control over his own life. So that when he is given a command and an order, he obeys it without question, without hesitation. The same sort of devotion is what is called of us, God's soldiers, the faithful of God's army. That we too are warring for the faith. And we war without hesitation or questioning. Knowing that God has control over our lives. That all of our fighting doesn't really amount to much. But because why? Jesus has already given us his victory. This is what Timothy was being called to. We might even say, as Paul later, well, it might not be Paul, but the writer of the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12, where he calls that church as well to what? Lay aside every weight which so easily besets you. Cast off all of these other entanglements, all of these other affairs of this life. Why? That you may endure hardness and war a good warfare for the faith that is in Jesus Christ. Which is a good segue to the second illustration which Paul uses here in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Along with having the devotion of a soldier. Secondly, Timothy was to have the discipline of an athlete. Look at verse 5. And if a man also strive for masteries, yet is he not crowned except he strive lawfully. So here Paul uses another very popular illustration uh, to get across the message of the truth of the ministry, which is the illustration of sports or athletes. He says there, a man striving for masteries is really better translated an athlete competing in the games, so to speak. 
He's referencing literally athletes competing. Uh, most likely he is, has in mind the Olympic Games, which of course is uh, uh, millennia old. And he has that in mind. As an athlete is competing in these different competitions, they do so how? He says they strive lawfully. They compete by following the rules. They are disciplined to follow all the regulations of the arena in which they are competing. Any athlete who tries to circumvent these rules, who tries to skirt around the regulations, so to speak, they will soon be disqualified and disgraced. And here Paul is saying, the athlete who competes, who wins the crown, is who? The one who strives in a disciplined way. Who abandons personal rule, personal autonomy, and submits to higher authority. Who submits to someone who can tell him what to do. He is disciplined enough to realize that he has to, if he wants to strive lawfully, he has to submit to a higher superior. Such is the charge for Timothy. That he too must, as we've already seen, already noticed, he must abandon uh, all sorts of personal autonomy, personal control, personal uh, sort of uh, planning for his life. And live, verse 1 of chapter 1, by the will of God, according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus. This was his motivation. This was his law, so to speak. Live by the will of God, Timothy. Live by that purpose. Live by that plan. This is your mission. This is your motivation. That as an athlete struggles, you too will have struggle. But you too have this goal in mind. The glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. It meant that abandon, he must abandon whatever else might make life easier and submit to God's rule of his life. This, I will also readily admit, is a very difficult thing to come to grips with. The idea of submitting control over our lives to someone else is something that's very difficult for us. I know for me it is. I don't want someone else telling me what to do. I think that's... Every person, every single human being's natural inclination is to be autonomous, to be self-ruling. Such is what got us into this mess in the first place. If you remember Genesis 3, what is Genesis 3? But a sort of rebellion of God's rule over Adam and Eve's life. They were tempted by the serpent to take of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they're tempted by what? Attempted by the idea that this will make them like what? Like God himself. They're tempted by the idea, by the fantasy, that they could be their own gods. And such is what we've been doing ever since. Playing around with this idea that we can be our own gods. We don't have to answer to anyone else's laws. We don't have to answer to anyone else's rules. Anyone else's authority. And God is saying, that's not living by my will. That is in direct contrast to my gospel. My gospel requires a self-abnegation of the throne of your heart. So that I might be the only one that resides on it. Such is what God says to us. 
Such is why he is our king, our sovereign. Timothy, this is your calling, Paul is saying. Strive as an athlete with all the discipline that he has learned. Strive knowing that there's a higher superior who has a better control over your life than you do. Strive for him knowing that the prize is at the end. And the prize is what? It's not just a crown. It's the actual presence of the Lord Jesus. That's the prize for which you are striving. It's presence with the Father. But this leads me to the third sort of portrait here that we have in the text. The devotion of a soldier. The discipline of an athlete. But look at verse 6. Because here we have the dedication of a farmer. Look at what he says. The husbandman that laboreth must be first partaker of the fruits. So here, Paul's third portrait of what it looks like to represent Jesus, represent the Redeemer, and all the troubled times in which we endure comes from the world of agriculture. He likens it to a husbandman, a farmer. This is your ministry, Timothy, Paul says to Timothy. And the implication, I think, is... Clear, though not always easy to accept, especially for a minister. Because you see it right in the very words. Paul says, the husbandman that laboreth. The implication is clear for Timothy. Timothy, your work for the Lord is going to require much labor. It's going to require a lot from you. Just as a farmer experiences and is able to reap no harvest without labor first, the work of the ministry will be hard. It will require lots of toil and sweat and effort. It will require lots of struggle for you in your life, Timothy. It's going to require labor. But again, Timothy, what's the message? Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Timothy, your labor is not in vain. And also, one thing that I I, I just was thinking about as I was thinking about this idea of ministering as a husband, but as a farmer, the labor for the ministry requires a great deal of patience. Timothy, don't think that you're going to turn the world around just by you and your message. Don't think that you are going to be the one that is going to lead an incredible uh, awakening in the church. Timothy, it requires the patience of a farmer. Requiring the patience and the dedication of one who knows that it's not necessarily them who are going to reap the harvest. A farmer... exercises labor, hard labor, prior to sitting down and enjoying the harvest. And as a farmer works hard, the fruit of that harvest is largely out of his control. Weather can come and sweep up all of his crops and all of that toil is out of his hands. And the same thing with you, Timothy. Labor for the church, for the glory of Christ... And leave the results up to me. Leave the results up to this God. Who as it says in verse 1 of chapter 1 again. Who has, has given us the promise of life in his son. 
He is the one who is over all of the results of your labor. All of the fruits of your harvest are in his hands. They are in his sovereignty. They are in his control. Timothy, exercise patient faithfulness, trusting that all the fruits of your labors are up to God and not you. I think about, I think about that and preachers' lives, preachers that we don't even perhaps know exist. Preachers who preached in small country churches way out in the Midwest perhaps, who preached faithfully. And they perhaps do not have anything for people to remember them by. And why did they toil? Why did they struggle for a church and a church body which has no remembrance of them? They toil as a husbandman, laboring with patient faithfulness, knowing that the harvest of their ministry is not up to them, it's up to Jesus. That their commission, their, their responsibility is what? Is to just labor here and now. In faith, knowing that God is sovereign over all the results, all the fruits of that ministry. There's a phrase that I have never been able to escape. I heard it at a conference several years ago in which one of the speakers said, You, he was speaking to preachers. You might be planting the seeds of trees which you will never get to enjoy the fruit of or the shade of. That's always stuck with me. Because as a preacher, I also read this in a book recently. He's talking about the ministry and the author says that pastors are long distance grace runners. And that a longing for immediate revival and return can tempt us to say no to patience and yes to shortcuts. And I thought about that because it's so easy to get caught up with wanting an immediate awakening and revival at the preaching of grace. And such is not always the case. Sometimes it happens a long time after you're gone. Happens a long time after you have been in the grave, where people remember the messages that you spoke. Does that make life worthless? No. That's a life that has been lived by the will of God, according to the promise of life. Not the life that we can enjoy here with all the fruits of having successful and abundant church ministry. It's the life lived according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. That's the life that truly matters. That's the type of dedication Paul is calling Timothy towards. Not life that you can get in the here and now. Life that is eternal. It's the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus, Paul says. This resonates with me because it (laughs) takes the pressure off my shoulders to... (laughs) Preach a message that always gets everyone coming forward and having a revival in their hearts. Because <laughs> that's not the standard. That's not the measure of success. The measure of success is not how many cars we have in the parking lot. It's not how many people fill our pews. I would love to have our church busting at the seams. But that's not, that's not where true success is found. That's not where true, the fruits of the harvest, so to speak, the fruits of all of our labors for ministry is not having a church that's busting at the seams. 
is being faithful to where we are and to who is in front of us. Knowing that God is always sovereign over the harvest. Whether we see it or not. Whether we are able to experience the incredible awakening that might just be around the corner or not. It's knowing that this is what is good and right for us to do. This is our responsibility as husbandmen, as an athlete, as a soldier. To strive according to this promise. That we have a savior who is superior to us. Who is sovereign over all the results of our lives. Who is sovereign over all the success of our life. There's, I just thought of it. I don't have this in my notes, but it's okay. Um, Ecclesiastes chapter 9. There's this incredible example of this sort of life of quiet faithfulness, we might say. If I can find Ecclesiastes... For some reason, I keep missing it. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Let me see if I can find it here. Oh, yeah. So look at verse 13. One day, I hope to preach through Ecclesiastes. So maybe you'll forget this and we can come back to it later. (laughs) But anyways, Ecclesiastes, it'll be a long while anyway, so it's okay. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, look at verse 13. Solomon here writes and he says, This wisdom have I seen also under the sun, and it seemed great unto me. There was a little city and a few men within it. And there came a great king against it and besieged it and built great bulwarks against it. Now there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no man remembered him, that same poor man. Then I said, wisdom is better than strength. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. The wisdom, or excuse me, the words of wise men are heard in quiet more than the cry of him that ruleth among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroyeth much good. That little story that he relates there of this kingdom being besieged by a conqueror and yet is delivered by what? A poor wise man who, as it says there, no one remembers. No fanfare for his incredible feat. No uh, parade, no day of remembrance. We don't have a poor wise man's day. To honor this great man and the great feat that he accomplished in delivering the city. And did that stop him? Did that stop him from uh, delivering and, and delivering the city and bringing peace to it? No. I hesitate. Well, I'm going to do it anyways. I, I've been confronted by some of these recent war movies. And just the fact of, I've watched that movie called uh, Dunkirk, came out a couple years ago. I'm always so moved when I watch it, because it's, it's of course about the evacuation of the British soldiers on the beaches of, uh, of France, and they can see home, 
There's hundreds of thousands of British soldiers there, and they're being surrounded by German soldiers. This is the story of Operation Dynamo, if you're familiar with World War II history. It's at the very beginnings of World War II. And they're being stranded there, and they have no way to get home because there's no way to get landing ships onto the beaches, and they can't get out, and they don't have a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, uh, spare resources to get these men off those beaches. And it shows the story of how they were able to uh, get several thousand men, I think it's 130,000 they're able to save off of that beach. By how? By using civilian boats that come across the English Channel and save all these men. It's a really impactful story. But I, I think about that story and think about all of those men that died on those beaches... The 17-year-olds, the 17, 18-year-old men who lay dead on those beaches who were what? Fighting for a cause, who were enduring hardness as good soldiers. Men that we don't necessarily know their names or remember their sacrifice or remember who they are. Perhaps your grandparents remember them or your or your. Or your uh, parents remember them. Perhaps you have relatives who have others who were part of those incredible conflicts. But I think about what stirred them to make such sacrifice for the Lord Jesus. It wasn't the fact that their names were be remembered. It's the fact that they knew who they were fighting for was true. What they were fighting for was true and good and right. It brings me back to a passage that I cannot escape, and forgive me if this sounds like a broken record, but in Hebrews chapter 11, there's that incredible portion at the end where it talks about these other people who were tortured. If you remember Hebrews chapter 11, where it talks about all these really faithful, incredible uh, people of the faith, Joseph and Moses and and, and, and um And Joshua and all these incredible uh, men and women of faith that it goes through. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And I love in verse 35 where it just says, Women received their dead and raised, and raised, received their dead raised to life again. And others were tortured, not accepting deliverance. They didn't accept any sort of uh, payouts or buyouts or anything like that. That they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings. Yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder. They were tempted. Were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins. Being destitute, afflicted, tormented. Of whom the world was not worthy. Who was the world not worthy of? These other people. Not named in the hall of faith. Named only by a collective others. They too strove and endured hardness. Why? Not because they would be remembered. But because they knew who they were striving for. They were representing not themselves. They were representing their Redeemer. Such is what allowed them to endure such persecution, such torture. I think about that for my own self. 
would I be able to be a part of this group? Not caring if I'm remembered or not. I pray that I would have that same sort of faith. Not caring whether uh, I am able to see the fruits of all of the labors that I have labored for the ministry. Just caring that Jesus is magnified and lifted up. Just caring about that. Just caring that people see me and see Jesus. Being okay with being unknown and unacknowledged and perhaps, perhaps unremembered. Knowing that it's not about me. It's about the Savior who has, it says, it says, given me a better resurrection. How? By giving me the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus. That was a, that was a rabbit trail, but it's okay. This is the point I think Paul is making to Timothy. This is your life, Timothy. Endure this hardness as a, this hardness as a good soldier. Have the discipline of an athlete and have the dedication of a farmer. Knowing that there is no other way for you to persist and endure in this life apart from the grace that is in Christ Jesus. This is your one comfort. This is your one certainty. This is the one truth which all of your life can be lived on. I pray for myself that I would live a life that is strong in God's grace. That is dedicated and devoted and disciplined to live according to the will of God. Not my own, but his will be done. Let us pray.